I think I'll believe anything these days. You're going to learn something important about New York, Virginia. I'll tell you that right now. Well, you could learn a few important things about your face. I thought you were going to say about Virginia, and then I was going to try not to laugh at you. I've, I've smelled a paper mill. Next. I've seen the tobacco plants. I've Next. seen the tobacco plant. What else you got? You got some cows. Check. You got the Beltway. That's where I'm from, Northern yeah. Virginia, D.C. area. Yeah, 95 is lovely. Next. <laughs> Community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic Cinematic Community. Tell people not to swear the mic around. <laughs> that's a good that's, that's a good point. You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just in The art and craft of movie making, the stories that define it. Welcome to Cinematic Community, folks. I'm your host, Louis Norman. With me, as always, is New York local, Los Angeles resident, podcast producer and co-host, Brian Hart. Queens is the best borough. I've had a good time in Brooklyn since I've been here. It's crazy talk. I don't want you to say things like that. It hurts my heart. How about if I said Manhattan? Well, Manhattan is a different beast altogether. It's like the capital of the capital. It's the center of the center of the world. Like, like, like the tiny pinpoint at the end of a black hole. And by the end, I mean in the middle of a black hole. Don't get too deep. It's an island with things on it. I've learned a lot about New York and how they've, how they've built their city upon a bed, of, a bed of shale on both sides. How they can build their buildings so tall. Usually recorded from Los Angeles, but we're in New York for... Uh... Six shows of pure brilliance. Having a good time, speaking with some great folks. Today we bring you Tom Weston, a cinematographer and camera operator here in New York City. He's been around a good long time, and he was a heck of a great guest to sit down with. We talked about uh, The Wind That Blows, his show that only took 25 years to make. We talked about his, uh, his time on Law & Order SVU. Lots of feature work, TV work. We talked about his work with one of my favorite cinematographers, Anastos Mikos, Tas, as he, uh, as he lovingly referred to him as. We talked some union politics, although nothing uh, inflammatory, despite my best efforts to uh, rile him up, get him excited. He's uh, too much of a politician to uh, say anything crazy. Which was, uh, which was respectable. We had a great time sitting down with him and I uh, hope you guys enjoy the podcast. So, again, you can check us out on www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. You can check out his full bio, uh, get a complete rundown while you listen to the podcast. If you like, just open up another window. And as always, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can email us at immunity at cinematiccommunitycast.com. Uh, Mr. Weston, uh, no, let me correct myself right off the bat. Uh, Tom, yes, uh, Tom Weston, thank you for sitting down with us. We sure. really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Um, so you've you've known uh, you've known Brian uh, since he was a kid. Yes. And how did that uh, first go about? Well, his father and I were colleagues, friends. Um, Brian, I think the first time I met Brian was uh, at my older son's two-year birthday party. You were probably like three or four. Yeah, he's 32 now, so. 
I'm 37, so he's five years younger than me. Wow. Uh, oh, he's oh, yeah, okay, something mm-hmm. like that. So you were maybe six. I don't think we were that, that far apart. Yeah. yeah. And at that point, uh, I mean, we were buddies in our infant years. Yeah. Is he still the same? This guy right here is he still the same rascal that he is uh, from back back then? Oh, that's hard to tell. I don't know yet. <laughs> I don't know yet. How long has it been since you've seen him? Good question. You came by the set of the City Kids TV show and busted my chops pretty good. That was in '93. Okay, so we might have seen um, each other once or twice after a that. A mere twenty, mere two decades. Did Doug do any SVU with you or any of that? I I'm might have sure come he by did. On set and said hello. I or? don't think so. I don't. I don't remember. Yeah, he was uh, definitely Doug was definitely on SVU, but I don't think you ever came by. Yeah. 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 And SVU was how many years into your career by then? Uh, I did. Well, I think I did uh, seasons nine, ten, eleven, and twelve of SVU. Um, so you'd already been doing it for thirty years by the time, uh, you know, by this time. I started freelancing in nineteen seventy-seven, um, and I guess I started on uh, Law and Order SVU probably two thousand six or five. I don't really remember exactly, but I was an operator on the show for two years, and then I was a DP on the show for two years. How did you, how did so you a DP, for those who don't know, is a director of photography, and the operator is the guy that works directly below the DP and actually has his hands on the camera and his eye to the eyepiece, generally speaking, uh, because in these days we don't use eyepieces so much. Um, but that's how that works. Tom's already better at this than we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, the DP also is in charge of the lighting, which is a big deal, and uh, and a lot of other things that happen on this set, which the uh, which the operator is not in charge of. So it's um, it's sort of a pyramid structure. And uh, the DP is up there, close to the director. A very militant pyramid structure. I, I think actually, as the time goes on, it's less so. You know, it used to be more. It used to the, the lines of uh, responsibility were more clearly distinguished. I think earlier in my career than it's, they are now. It seems that uh, you always know who your boss is and who you're the boss to, and what your responsibilities are, because there's a in general uh, a division of labor uh, in in professional shooting. That's true, although I do submit that that's changing over time, um, and maybe we'll talk about the paradigm shift in the uh, technology and what that has brought to the business. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, from my perspective, different than it was in 1978, nine, eighty. So, what were your goals when you got in? My goals when I got in was yeah. to shoot major motion pictures. As a DP, or? sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Where were you before that kind of led to that in terms of college and schooling? Well, um, I'm actually a third-generation uh, cameraman, is what we used to call our, now we call ourselves cinematographers. Um, uh, my, grand, my, my maternal grandfather was a cameraman who worked at Astoria and in the New York area. He spent a brief amount of time in Los Angeles in the early 30s, um, which must have been really interesting. Um, and then uh, he got my father into the... my my, my father into the business, who was his son-in-law, um, in New York, and they moved to Maryland, and so I grew up in Maryland. Uh, my dad was a news cameraman back in, uh, and he was a White House news photographer. Um, I went to college, um, took some film courses where I found that I actually also had a love for the uh, art and craft of making films, and um, so then I came to New York and got a job in a rental house and now I've completely forgotten the question. What was it? <laughs> how, did you get start, how did you get started in a business? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I got started. I worked at this crazy, wonderful, highly energetic place called Furco, the film equipment rental company in Manhattan. And uh, there was a small outfit on West 54th Street. And um, they had cameras and lights and stuff like that. And I got a job 
as their messenger, and then I got into the lighting department and then into the camera department. And during that process, you get to meet all sorts of people in the business, and you get to have wonderful conversations with people at that time, you know, youngsters like myself who were excited about getting into the film business. And uh, I took some courses at SV, at, um, at uh, New School, and um, went to a lot of movies and just really threw myself into the film biz and then uh, left Furco after about two years and started freelancing as a camera assistant, drawing on all the people that I had met at Furco for jobs. I think that that happens a lot uh, for young folks getting it's, out of a rental house. It re you have to rely on the connections that you've made to, in order to have a shot in the freelance world. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great way to go. <clears throat> I really, uh, I still recommend it even now in the, in 2014, I still recommend the rental house route for people who um, want to get into the business and sort of go through the uh, the camera assistant. I was fortunate. Path. I was fortunate enough to have um, uh, instructors at my school put in a good word for me at the first rental house that I rented. Uh, that I went. Oh, where did you work? I worked uh, for um, Hollywood Rentals in Orlando, Florida. Okay. Um, after I was uh, before. Yeah, um, before I got into the business, I that was my that was my 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 foot in the door to start meeting some of the people, work with some of the best boys, prep their equipment, mm -hmm. just talk to them. Don't work, don't try too hard to get out there. You'll get there in due time, and right. and ideally over a long enough period of time, they'll they'll remember you so that when it's your time to go get out there, hopefully you'll get a call. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty much how it works. And so I started working on it. I did a lot of documentaries at first, and then uh, you know I took the test, got in the union, and. Uh, ABC Sports and stuff like that. Then I started working on a few movies with uh, Brian's father, Doug, who was a first assistant. And uh, I did three movies with him as a second. And uh, then I started mostly doing commercials. I was an assistant for nine years. And uh, it was a great, great nine years. Fabulous. Can I ask you real quick about that test that you took for yeah. Local 600? Because that's something that I've heard of over the years. Right. But it seems to be only relevant to New York, New York locals. Whether, yeah, honestly, uh, I, I don't know exactly know why it's only. It's actually six forty four was the test, and uh, basically you had uh, a written test which which tested your photographic knowledge, uh, you know, color temperatures, filters, that kind of thing, frame rates, and then you had to put together half a dozen or so cameras, and uh, talk about the cameras and how they work, and load the magazines and thread them up and. So you'd have an Eclair, you know, NPR and a Mitchell and a, you know, whatever um, was was were the popular cameras back in the day. So I took the test in 1977. So all of those cameras are now in a heap of junk somewhere. I'm sure because um, they're sitting in the local 600 office. There in, may uh, be one or two. Well, I think on those display. might even be older than than 1977. But it's a good test. I mean, it was a good way to. You know, to find out how sincere you were about wanting to get into the business, it, it, was, it was difficult. But if you if you wanted it all, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't difficult if you really wanted to to learn that stuff. And it felt like that was important stuff to know. And I had written down that you had had a short term as an AC, but that was just out of your credits. But nine years really isn't a short term, and right. a long term as an op, which is a little different than what we're hearing. We keep hearing. From different DPs, their path up, and they're always different. Some are gaffers, some are ACs, and the amount of time you're—you're you're the first that we've that we've talked to that spent a lot of time as an op, really, before making that jump forward. You spent more time as an op than 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 most of the people we've talked to, anyway. 
I don't know if it seemed like a long time to you. Um, but you had a lot of great op credits, Sex in the City and Step Up, and you talked about SVU and I Am Legend and Shooter and Manchurian Karina. Where well, we'll a lot of those, some of those, way. some of those are actually, I mean, I was very, I wasn't very, I wasn't on the job very long. I wasn't like the eight camera operator who did the whole job. I did, you know, additional photography for a week or two. I mean, like the IMDB thing is kind of crazy because it lists me, I'm known as uh, for I Am Legend. I did you were on a show for a day? I did, well, I did a, maybe a week on it, you know, maybe two. I don't know, eight days or something. Yeah, the known fours are the movies that get the most clicks. They have yeah. nothing to do with the uh, person. Yeah, yeah. So Doug said the exact same thing to me yesterday. He said, there's no way to tell if I was on that show for a week or for the, you know, the from day one to, right. to the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know you were on all of the hard way, and we're talking to a lot of people that did the hard way uh -huh. this week. So Yeah, oh, yeah, I was on quite a bit of that, yep. That was my research movie that I managed to squeeze in uh, for this discussion uh, was the hard way. Um, with uh, with Michael J. Fox and um, James Woods. Right. Well, <gasps> I was a on the second unit. So we didn't see many of the stars that summer. No, no. We did a lot of crazy stuff and a lot of stuff in Times Square, and um, which was interesting because Times Square is completely changed now. But, um, yeah, I was on the hard way a lot. I was on Hudson Hawk, too, which is a pretty – that was a uh, an interesting and important movie in New York because it was so expensive because of the way they shot it. And the lockout, famous lockout of New York, came shortly thereafter. So a lot of people think there was a connection. All the stuff on the bridge you, yes. you did, I would assume? Because yes. that's what... Uh, yeah, we were on like triple, quadruple, golden time before we even got on the bridge, you know, and stuff like that. It was crazy. Um, and looking back, it was like, well, it's nice to make those great paychecks, but it sure made us look like we were greedy, <laughs> you know, when you look back at how much they did pay. But as I said, there are those who think that that was not a coincidence. Um, do you, uh, so for, as a second unit director of photography, you're working with action and stunts for those who may not know? Right, right. Um, what, what is that like when you're working with second unit having to collaborate with first unit and to make sure that the stuff matches and that the first unit director of photography and the director are very happy with your work? Um, is it all just during well, dailies? And um, well, there aren't that many dailies anymore. Um, typically... The stuff that I was second unit DP on was stuff that I was also the B camera operator on or something like that. So um, there was a daily rapport, and I saw how the things were being shot on a daily basis. So there really weren't questions that I had to ask. I mean, I would be, be sent out to do establishing shots or, you know, insert shots for a scene or that sort of thing. So it really wasn't uh, um, difficult to know, you know, what to do. And there weren't a whole lot of conversations required it wasn't that big a deal are you finding that uh, over the years it's re remained the same that your a camera will generally shoot the master or a wider shot and the b camera will go in for tighter coverage yes. at the same time so that's pretty yeah. much stayed consistent throughout the throughout the yeah. course yeah although you know I, you started seeing more two camera stuff um i don't know i mean it used to be a single camera and there was a, the b camera I mean, I did B-camera on movies where, you know, we hardly came out of the truck, which is kind of boring. Um, but um, you don't know that going in. So you take the job, and then it turns out, well, we don't have room for the B-camera. Then, and, and typically, like in, in, uh, in television, for example, you have what you call single-camera episodic television, which in the 90s became shot, you know, we shot it with two cameras. So it's ironic that we did single-camera episodic with two cameras. Now we do three and that's uh, that's becoming more and more the uh, 
the process of having, you know, three cameras on board and almost all three of them working all the time. Um, for much bigger for much bigger setups, you know, with a lot more people, extras or more space to shoot in, you can have, like, let's say, especially if you're shooting action in that sequence, you can have your A camera covering the main shot that the director wants, and generally they'll have a B camera, a B camera shot uh, that they'll find, and sometimes the C camera is just there to pick up little bits and pieces sure. um, because it can be hard to plan out every shot that you need. So you have that third operator there because it's more expensive to take longer to shoot with two cameras in, that, in those situations. Absolutely, and there are still there are some directors who think that one camera is the only way to tell. I mean, it depends on on how you the 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 directing producing team has decided to approach the project. Some people steadfastly believe that there's only one position for the camera, and so therefore they'll only use one camera at a time. Others want to do as you just were suggesting. And sometimes you will do. Uh, you know, we'll shoot principal actors with all three cameras. I mean, if the, if the scene requires it, if there's a lot of dialogue, if there's uh, a lot of emotion, if there's instances where, you know, you want to have a lot of variety, but you don't want to have the actress to do it four or five times and then turn around and do it four or five times again, you just put the cameras on them from different angles, tight eye lines, looser eye lines, wider shots, two shots, 50-50s, all that stuff, depending on each individual setup, which would work best. And some people are perfectly comfortable using three cameras to shoot two people talking to each other. And, you, and because you feel it's a time saver? Where are you on the it takes so much more to light it time-wise versus... Well, it's much more challenging to light for three cameras than it is to light for one camera. And and sometimes um, that's the trade-off. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, what a lot of people are doing these days are, are cross-shooting, which is really difficult. But sometimes it'll just fall in place where you can look at the scene, you can look at the way it's blocked, you can say, oh, you know what, we can cross-shoot this, and we can get both sides, you know, we can do a wider and a tighter with each camera, and basically we'll have the scene covered quickly and efficiently, um, and it won't suffer. Um, the other thing that's happening now is in post-production, You there is an enormous amount of control that wasn't there before, easily explored because we're all basically using, you know, uh, computers. And so we can... Sadly, from the DP standpoint, actually, you can uh, adjust the lighting pretty easily in post. Not always uh, with the finest with the finest touch. You can, absolutely you know, yeah. not. But it's a, but there gets yeah, certainly better than it was twenty years ago. Absolutely. And who knows where it's going to go? And you know the cameras have more latitude and you know power windows and vignettes and all these things that you can do. Um, you know, four K now it's so so typical that people will blow up your close-ups. You know, you do what you think is to be a really nice tight close-up and you see it on the air and it's a screamer um, because somebody down the road wanted it to be a tighter shot. You know, so you have, it's um, it's an interesting time that we're in in terms of the, uh, the change in technology, what it allows, where the control is. It's kind of shifted in some ways from the set to post-production in ways that uh, cameramen often lament, cinematographers lament. We keep jumping around here. I'm going to go back to operating for a second. You've, you you said that operating is often the best job on set. Why why do you think Well, it's that? fun. It's it's fun. Um you know, you're sort of in the eye of the storm. Um you uh get to work closely with the crew. You get to work closely with the talent. You get to work closely with the director. You don't necessarily or seldom do you have to take home the 
some of the political problems that arise. You know, you just you finish your day's work. You know, you you hang up your your spurs and you go home. You know, you get to use your instincts. You get to use your intellect, and um, you get to be a part of uh, the, the creative process. And it's um, and like I said, you and the, the the beauty is you don't have to deal with a lot of the politics. Yeah, that's the one thing you said out of that that definitely has echoed in the last 60 seconds is not having to deal with the politics. Um, sometimes with some of the directors of photography that I work for, like I feel protected by them. Like right. I feel like, you know, if I'm communicating with my director of photography, you know, in a way that we both have an understanding that I'm going to do the best that I can, I'm going to try and show up and really show up, you know, that they will protect me from having to deal with something that the director may not may, may not like or some of the chaos that may come in from... You know, like, for instance, I've been asked as an operator uh, to go pull focus on second unit. My DP's like, no, are you crazy? You know, and it's like, and I, and, and I, being that I had just shown up to that set, may not have that same instinct to just stand my, you know, stand my ground and say, you know, because I'm the kind of guy that I will want to help out however I can. But I didn't want to go do that. I thought that that was not, not what I wanted to do. And the director of photography... You know, it's just another situation where I felt protected by the DP by just being, just wanting to be an operator, just wanting to go in and do my job. And right. Sometimes, um, sometimes that's that's some of the. I think that relates to what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, there's a. I mean, on the film set, there are a lot of creative people, and creative people can be touchy sometimes. And you just, you know, as an operator, you just be, you just respectful. You watch carefully. You listen carefully, and you. Hopefully, can uh, capture their their per, the actor's performance and the, what the director wants, and um, and keep a low profile. And it's fun to be low profile sometimes. How much of your job is anticipation? Most of it. Yeah, um, I don't think I had a follow up question to that. <laughs> uh, I just it, it just uh, dawned on me that that was relevant to the conversation again. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think as an assistant. In every category uh, that I that I've worked as an assistant, as an operator, as a DP, as a second assistant, you know, it's all about anticipation, but it's also about flexibility. So, you know, you you can't anticipate a, a solution to a problem, and then all of a sudden the problem shifts and your solution doesn't work, and you can't be stuck in what you thought was the right thing to do. You have to be flexible now. Oh. Oh, I didn't know that that was the case. So now you change, but it's really, um, and 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 that anticipation comes from experience too. I mean, once you once you've done it a few times, you begin to learn the kind of okay, you you know, this is what happens in reality. This is what happened the last ten times I did this. Some one of those permutations is probably going to happen again, um, so you can be prepared for it. And um, and that's. Uh, that's a, I don't know, that's the, just the beauty of being in the business a long time. Do you have any specific uh, situations, examples of when you may have, uh, or when you have seen someone get stuck in that anticipation? Like trying to make a suggestion that, uh, that then things shifted and that just didn't work? Uh, no. Uh -uh. Okay, no yeah, worries. Yeah. Um, I found that experience on set is sometimes hearing other departments, listening to other things that are going on around you and being able to anticipate that. You know, if you're there as, as the op or DP and you can hear, you know, in the distance, a guy was saying, well, you know, gosh, we're going to have to run cables all the way around the building to be able to do that. Then, you know, you've got a couple extra minutes to do the other thing that you want to do. I found that that's what experience really is on a film set is sort of knowing what everybody else's moving parts are and the time that they're going to need to do things. 
Uh, you know, here, you're hearing a, a conversation between a director and an actor. Oh, they're going to switch that up. Oh, well, then we need to have this ready to be able to do that, and you can start those. Those. Yeah, movements. that's that's what I've seen. Well, that's a really good point. Is that you need to. Um it's good that you have that heads up, but everybody doesn't want to give out that information. So if you can catch it, if you can get it on the slide, that's really good because, um, yeah, if you want to, you know, as an operator, you want to lay a bunch of dolly track and uh, and you don't really have the time to do it, then you're making a mistake. But if you do have more than enough time to do it uh, and you don't do it, then you've really made a mistake. So it's it's those kinds of things. And oftentimes, the you know, the DP and the director both uh, I think it was, uh, I think a quote that I heard from Steven Spielberg was that directing a picture is like being pecked to death by ducks. <laughs> and what he's talking about is that there are just so many questions. And a DP is in the same position. And, and an operator, to a much less degree, I've got, you know, assistants, as I'm, and I've been mostly operating for the last couple of years, and, and assistants want to know, what are we doing? And I'm like, I will tell you as soon as I know, I don't want us to jump the gun. Don't, should I put the 11 to 1 on? I don't know. Maybe, probably. Vegas odds, 70, 30, yes. But don't Stand do it yet. Stand by with it. But don't do it yet. Count to 10. I always say count to 10 because uh, as soon as we know, we'll put it together and we'll do it. And we'll do it as efficiently as possible. But I don't want, I don't want camera assistants or anybody to do double work because I'm jumping the gun. So I, you know, that's one of the things that, that really I learned as a DP is that you don't want the crew to jump the gun. At least I don't, because I don't want them to be in a position where, you know, we just put up the 12 by and now you've changed your mind. Right. Had I waited 30 seconds, I wouldn't have said put up the 12 by, or whatever. A lot of the assistants, though, may be doing the same thing that you're doing, where they're trying to get the information and be on it. Absolutely. And, and, and that's there, and they don't know that you're, you know, not all operators are going to be that way. Right. Uh, you know, they might have a different uh, approach to how well, to get the job done. Yeah, a lot, a lot of guys, I mean, everybody wants to do a good job. I've never worked with anybody that wanted to do a bad job, um, which is one of the great things about the industry. Everybody's, everybody's into it. And uh, so, you know, knowing that with the crew is that, uh, you know, they're going to do what you ask them to do. And they're going to do it with, you know, a good attitude until things start to fall apart. And that's where you don't, you don't want things to fall apart because, because they can. So one day you did decide to take on those politics and jump from op to being called a cinematographer full time. Yep, what yep. led to that decision? Well, I mean, it's something that I always wanted to do. Um, you know, I um, I took a departure early in my career. I started shooting in '86. I changed my card, and in '88, '89, I got this idea for this project that I ended up working on, or changed my life for like five years. So. So my goal at, when, I, when I got into the business was to be shooting feature films when I was 40, and all of a sudden here I was almost 40 years old, and uh, I'm still like living in the West Indies, and I'm not anywhere near. So, um, so I got back into uh, the mainstream of filmmaking, and at that prior to that, I had been shooting a lot of commercials and stuff, and I was hoping that shooting commercials would lead me into narrative filmmaking. Um, but then I had that little sojourn. And so when I came back, I started working as an operator, and um, and I had kids. I had to set up to school. I had financial obligations, all that kind of stuff. So I just sort of focused on being an operator and took operating jobs and learned to be an operator, which had a lot of things about it that I did not know coming out of, as I did the last few years of being an assistant, the last four or five years of being an assistant was almost all commercials. So there's a lot of stuff that I learned in the in the 90s and in the early 2000s about operating, 
And, um, and then I got to the point where I was operating on a TV show, which is, um, you know, a, which is, can be really fun. And this particular show was, had a good, really good bunch of people. So I did that for two years, and the DP of the show, uh, who's a great guy. Um, Do you not want to tell us what show? Law and Order Special. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, did that for a couple of years. Did Sex and the City for a couple of years, which was great. And then, uh, and then I, I, I did SVU, and, um, and the producers and uh, George Patterson asked me if I wanted to alternate the following year. So on SVU, so I did, so. That was two years of the position of director of photography with the other every other episode I shot right for two seasons and that was great. Sorry again, I just got to make sure I explain it for those who wouldn't know what you may be talking about. Yeah. Oh, um, a lot of television shows do that. They'll alternate teams. They will alternate ads, assistant directors, and dps for prep time, so that you get so that let's say a show is an eight day episode, which many are. Some are nine these days, and some are even ten. One hour episodics. I'm talking about. But uh, you'll have a team of an AD and DP with the director uh, doing a show, and then you'll have another team prepping a show, and that's pretty much how it works. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so then, um, so then there was a big change at SVU, um, and the showrunner who left SVU had a new show called A Gifted Man, and he asked me to shoot that, which was great. And that was, but unfortunately, it only lasted. One season, almost an entire season. TV is tough. Yeah, yeah. That was a great show. I mean, I loved it, and um, uh, I wish it had continued, but it didn't. And um, so I've been doing a little bit of DPing since then, but mostly operating the last couple of years. You find that that um, is that will hold the, in essence, hold the fort down while you have, you know, you confer with your agent if you have one, and you try and get yourself out there. Uh, yeah. to find the next the, the next. Yeah, show. well, I'm not rich. Sadly, I'm not independently wealthy, so uh, I need to work, and um, so I'm working as an operator. And I I get a lot of uh, you know sent out to do inserts and second unit and that kind of stuff. So I get to do a little bit of DPing from time to time. Exercise that creative muscle. Yeah, yeah, and I'm hoping to get. I mean, I love DPing. I think as much as I love operating, I think I love DPing more. Um, Doing every show of a, of a television series, for me, was exhausting. I really put my heart and soul into it. Um, alternating is the, is the way to go. It's a very civilized lifestyle, I think. So during that prep, during that prep week, your, your alternate week, uh, is it about storyboards, about location scouting, about just having time to go through the script and sit down and see if there's anything exotic in that episode, uh, you know, special effects kind of stuff? What's going on during that alternate week with you, a first AD, and... Uh, the director of that episode, probably. Well, the AD is scheduling. They're scheduling their fannies off because that's the t- that's one of the most tricky things in television is how to get it all done in you know eight days or nine days. Um, every director is different. I mean, it's it's really silly. Some I worked with a director who uh, barely read this script when we went on the tech scout. At that point, he was like, you know, very very cavalier about it. Because he Turned had done a, 50 of them? Because or? he had done 1,000 of them. I don't okay, know how many he had done, you. you know. But uh, he's just very cavalier. Um, I was sort of nervous because the guy doesn't seem to really care. But, of course, he cared and he did a great job. I worked with a guy who had gone through the entire script, drawn up floor plans for every scene, placed camera positions and actor positions with a transition and a detail for every single scene of the script prior to the tech scout. So... 
I mean, there's a full range of of approaches, you know, and then and some uh, some directors are really strong, some directors are not so strong. Um, some have great gut instincts. Some go sort of strictly uh, sort of in a formula. Some throw the formula right out the window. It's all different, and um, and so now I've you know I've worked on a bunch of different TV shows and seen that uh, there's no one way. I mean, there's a way that I like to work. But I assume as VP, you would appreciate the blocked to the hilt version of it. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, yeah, that's a really, because then you can really prepare, you know. But then there's the argument about spontaneity, which, you know, it's actually absolutely true. Um, you know, you bring the actors in and you, you said, you know, I thought you guys would walk from that end of the room to the other and sit down there and then stand up and walk over there. And they go, well, no, that's not at all what we would do. So now all that planning is a waste of time, you know, because you figured, well, I'm going to put the camera here, so I'm going to light from here, and then I'm going to put the camera there. So, you know, I've already established my key, and I'll do this and that, and then the actors come in and they go, no, that doesn't feel right to me at all, and um, and so everything changes. Do you feel that uh, just just for the pace difference between a ten page or a twelve page TV day versus a page and a half feature day, do you think that the corners get cut on the TV day? Or is the crew so in sync, you know, they're so, you know, at, at speed at that point that you're not really cutting the, those corners, that you've come in prepped and you're going to get what you need and you've got two, three cameras going and you get get what you need on? Uh... Well, I mean, as a DP, from a DP standpoint, there's nothing more um, satisfying than having, you know, that kind of an efficient day where you are in sync and you do do, you know, I don't know about 10 pages a day, but, uh, you know, seven, easy, you know, uh, seven pages of really quality stuff because it was so well planned out and your crew is so in sync. Um, and I've also been on shows, shows where there's a, you know, it's a train wreck and, you know, you don't make your day. And uh, fortunately, that hasn't didn't happen to me so much as a, as a, as a DP, but, uh, you know, it, it does happen and it's sometimes completely out of the DP's control. Oftentimes. I hear that there's generally only two things an executive producer is going to care about. Is it in focus, and did we make our day? Right. Well, there's the two-make rule for DPs. Make your leading lady beautiful. Make your day. Nugget. That's that's a quote. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, just out of curiosity, what do they do? If you have an eight-day shooting schedule and you've already scheduled up the show be- you know, behind you, like what happens if you just have a train wreck location or you know, act of God kind of, you know, blackout type problem. Uh, what do you do when you've got to make up days on a TV show and you've already scheduled days? Well, the worst thing that ever, the one that everybody hates is you work a Saturday, right? Uh, and nobody likes to do that. Um, and the, But it happens sometimes, not that often. Or you do a tandem day where you split the crew up. And, uh, and a lot of shows now um, will we'll build in tandem days. The ninth day of the episode will be a tandem day. So the day day one of episode seven will be, you know, also day nine of episode six, and you split up the crew and um, and one one group goes on location, one group goes to the stage, and yeah. you uh, you work it out scheduled as an easy day, a half day kind of thing. That's why the you know the ad's life is such a nightmare because they've got to be able to pull those things together, and you know, so you've got a cast of of so many people, and you've got half of them. Someplace and half of them someplace else. Generally, what I've seen with those types of situations is where um, they take the they don't they won't call that unit and a second unit. They'll call it an additional unit, and then it'll be like day nine of eight, 
right. for an eight-day shooting schedule. It'll be day nine of eight, and what they do is they have um, they shoot scenes that don't require the principal actors sure. uh, with that additional unit, and right. they'll pull like the A camera operator to go be the, the second unit DP so that he can manage all that because he's there watching how the DP lights every day of the show. Right. Yeah. That's generally how I've seen that breakdown. Keep right. your principal actors with first unit. Send the additional, uh, send the non-main principals, you know, number one and two on the call sheet, however that breaks down. Yeah, they call them tandem units, or they'll call them double-up units. But Double-up days. I've yeah. definitely heard double-up days. Yeah, and that'll, that, you know, the, the second DP can come from the camera crew, from the main camera crew, or it can come from the outside. It can be, you know, a, a guy that everybody knows and likes, and you bring him in. I've done some double-up days on 30 Rock and different shows like that. So, so it's important to be known and liked. Good, good to know. <laughs> When we talked to Bruce Logan, he, he, was, he was very adamant that the DP's role should continue much further into post than they currently budget it and schedule it today. Absolutely. What's your feel on that? That there's yeah. never enough time in post to be able to sit down and go through the color process and all that? What's your... Well, the, the director of photography is the one that's you know, ostensibly in charge of the photography. And if you have someone ham-fistedly adjusting it at the other end, unbeknownst to him, then he really can't be held responsible for what it looks like, plus he's going to pull his hair out when he sees it. Um, and I think that it's possible probably more in, in feature films to do that. Um, television, the schedule in television hardly allows that, particularly if you're doing every episode. You know, when in the world are you going to color time this thing? You've just done a 70-hour work week, and, you know, you've handled... And when they're editing emails during episode the course three, of the week. you're working on episode seven. So. Right. And so uh, on Saturday night, are you going to spend, you know, three hours in a telecine with, uh, you know, how do you actually do that? Um, and that's one of the things I alluded to earlier when I was talking about all the changes and how powerful post-production is becoming. Now, that can possibly be avoided on feature films and maybe in television, uh, but we have to really put our heads together um, to figure out how we're going to get that control. I personally think that in many ways the, 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 the genie's out of the bottle and we're not going to get him back in. Early on when I was shooting SVU, we did a scene in a seedy hotel. We shot it on stage. I was absolutely ecstatic with the way it looked. The gaffer was ecstatic about the way it looked. We chose to do some cheesy sodium vapor lighting through the window, through these curtains and all this kind of stuff. It was dark, it was moody, and it was creepy. And we got the dailies back, and it was dark, and it was moody, and it was creepy, and it was awesome. And we were really psyched. I was doing one of my early shooting gigs, uh, shooting days with, on, on, uh, on that show. And uh, so then a month later, it comes out on television. And that dark, creepy scene is not so dark anymore, and it's not as creepy. And it's like, what happened? So I talked to the colorist. And I was very impolitic. I wasn't. I didn't realize what I was asking, but I was asking why did it look so much better in dailies than it did on the air? Well, she started crying. But this person got very, very upset when I asked why it looked better uh, in dailies than on the air and said that I know exactly what you were going for. That's exactly what I wanted to do. But the executive producer thought it was too dark and made me make it brighter. And I need my job, and I can't go fighting with the executive producer. And so I made it brighter. I'm sorry. And I realized at that point that as long as that dynamics exists, there's nothing that I could do. And what do I do? 
What do you think about some of the uh, the technologies that are available today with having onset coloring and the ability to have your DIT as long as they have the they're afforded the technology um, and the space and the time? Generally, it's not it's it's more about the space and the the the, the cost of it. But having uh, the ability to have your dailies colored, uh, like so, if you're doing a feature film, there are systems out there that allow you to have your outputs for. Uh, for yep. post-production, and then a different one for dailies because each of those systems that are reading it are going to respond differently to the technologies that are giving it the, the, the information, the zeros and ones. So if you have someone on set that controls the outputs, yep. you can control that. I totally dig the idea behind it, and I, I, I totally get it. I don't know if it's going to work because in the, in, the, in the example of what I was just saying, right, that executive producer would not have cared what the DIT did. He would have made that scene brighter. So yes, it is absolutely a potential for us to, uh, uh, for cinematographers to maintain control, but I don't know if that's gonna win the day. Um, I have not worked with the DIT very much. Um, when, I, when I shot A Gifted Man, uh, I had, we had a DIT for the first episode and uh, he left after about four or five days because he had a commercial gig and he didn't think we, he was needed with, on our set. So, you know, I, I, I that wasn't a really fully developed relationship with the DIT. Um, but... Um, well, what do you call... The, are you calling that person a digital loader? Somebody is taking your cards and putting them on a hard drive. Yeah. Um, that's, I don't know uh, if I'm really qualified to, to speak to the DIT issue because, as I said, I... I when I shot, I basically used what they call Rec. 709, which is if you if you you have control, you have so much control over the image that you could exercise on set. You said off, you know, near set coloring and so forth. There's a lot of control. Um, my feeling was that, from my experience that I related to earlier, is that uh, you know you you light, you make the scene look as good as you can. You you don't spend too much time. Um, fussing with the image on set because it's going to change if you, and there's no way for you to prevent that change. So what you try to do is you try to develop the best rapport you can with the people in post-production. Okay, so um, you've had a lot of experience shooting on some things that I found very interesting over the years. Um, uh, now, again, going off of IMDb credits, I don't know okay. how much you may have been around for some of these. Um, but the one that really got my attention was Death, Death to Smoochie, Anastas Mikos. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, and I saw that you had also worked with Anastas on other films, um, but that one is has always been one of my favorite, huh. especially like po post-2000, uh, one of my favorite New York films. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, Toss uh, is a good friend. He's a great cameraman. He... Uh, uh, he and I shared an office back in the day, early day. I used to, I used to live about uh, 60 miles outside of the city, so I kept, I had a camera and stuff, and Toss had a steady cam back in the early days, so we shared an office. So um, He's a great cameraman. He's done some really interesting things, and Desta Smoochie was one of them. I did, you know, I don't know if you remember the, the time-lapse sequence in Times Square of all the, you know, I did that. Yeah, right I at the very that. end. One, yes. That was fun. And then a bunch of B-camera stuff and then a bunch of other uh, second-unit stuff. But, uh, yeah, Danny DeVito was the director, and Danny uh, Toss did a bunch of projects with Danny, and Danny is one of the coolest guys that you'll ever work with. A uh, real genuine person, um, smart as a whip, and you know, great to be around. And he and Toss got along really, really well. Toss is a really smart guy, 
And um, I'm glad you liked that movie. It was a, an odd one. <laughs> I'm an odd kind of guy. Uh, that yeah. one just uh, really, really hit it for me because it was so different, you know, yeah. and in the colors and just everything, just, yeah, you know, no and the story was told well. Like, I, I think of the 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 upward angle, uh, the downward looking shot of Jon Stewart as he's trying to explain to the studio exec why everything's going wrong. And it's like this this awkward shot. And it just, it, it, the story is just told brilliantly all yeah. the way through and through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Danny and Toss worked well together. They did some cool stuff. Um, I also see that you worked with uh, one Mr. Brian Reynolds. Uh, you know, I just, I re-met him about a, a couple of weeks ago at a party. Um, I I keep referring to my surgeon in the West Indies. I had just returned from uh, the West Indies, didn't know anything about NYPD Blue. And um, they needed an extra camera, so I went on NYPD Blue. And I didn't know about the whole shaky camera thing, and uh, it was interesting. And so I learned about that pretty quickly. And then they sent me off to shoot some second unit stuff with a guy named Greg Hoblet, who I didn't know either. I I was, you know, it's really, I was well out of the, off the grid there for a while. And um, he started he wanted me to, you know, just sort of start on the street side and then whip over to the hot dog vendor and back to the kid on the bicycle and then over. And I was like, really? This is what you want to do? And he's like, haven't you seen this show? And then I realized, sort of subsequently, obviously, that uh, there was a whole new style that I, was, I had missed out on while I was away. Um, How long were you gone? A uh, better part of five years. Yeah. Was the shaky camera look the like the hand, like handheld like quick pans? Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, long lens. Well, their look was sort of long lens and quick pans, and you know, added tension to the frame. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to, you know, add that visceral, organic sense to a camera, handheld or, you know, or shaky or uh, different ways. But uh, the, the NYPD Blue look was was new and interesting. It was, it was sort of a telephoto, swishy kind of a feel to it. So let's get into, uh, you'd get yourself involved in, in union politics oh boy. over time. Uh, presently, you're Eastern Region Council member, and you're on the executive board. But how did it start? What, did you, what were your first steps into uh, oh getting boy. into the political arm of what was 644 and is now 600? Um, you know, a lot of our colleagues in high school and so forth were like the, you know, the AV guys, you know, or the shutter bugs or the photo geeks. We're all in the room. Yeah. Well, that wasn't me. I was a student council geek. And all through junior high and senior high school, I was involved with student council and went to week-long camps during the summer and county and state conventions and and learned a whole lot about um, governance and about Robert's Rules of Order and about how organizations can run themselves through representative government and stuff. And and building consensus and fair play and giving a voice to the minority and doing the will of the majority and all those kinds of things that, uh, that a lot of people know about. But, I mean, I really dove in big time. And, it, and those are my formative years, and it just stuck with me. And I joined Local 600, Local 644, rather, in 77, and um, met a guy named Doug Hart, who was involved with the union politics then, and and uh, he was sort of uh, encouraged me to come to meetings and stuff, which I was going to do anyway. And then I got involved in local 644 politics, and and they were really interesting. We had uh, you know lots of meetings and lots of yelling, and it's a pretty democratically run mess. You know, it was like as a good democracy, I think is it's messy. It's it's a lot of people speaking their minds and getting things off the chest and. 
and and reaching a consensus and then moving forward. And then no hard feelings. We'll, you know, we're colleagues in arms. We will move forward. And um, so I, I enjoyed that. And um, and uh, was vice president of Local 644. And, uh, and then, of course, once again, the sojourn came up and I sort of left. And I came back into the scene in New York around 94. So I was gone from like 89 to 94. I was back a little bit. I did Hudson Hawk in that time period, and I did uh, The Hard Way in that time period, and I saw the lockout of New York in that time period, and the merger of Nabit in that time period, but I wasn't here. My heart was uh, and head were really in the, in the West Indies, where I had some other stuff going on. And, uh, but I came back, and I was ready to jump back into the mainstream, and crazy stuff was happening up here. There, was, there had been the lockout, the merger, now the, I mean, the merger of, of Nabit 15 into the IA in New York. And now the rumor of the merger of the camera locals. I got back involved again and um, ended up on the executive board. For some reason, I've always ended up on the executive board. I get a lot of votes. And, um, and so I got really involved in local 600 politics from day one, from uh, the very first national executive board meeting in 1996. I think it was June. I don't remember what day. Up until now. And it's been a passion of mine. Um, that whole time, um, I got really heavily involved a couple of times. I ran against the incumbent in 98 and served as uh, national vice president for three years. Then I ran against the incumbent in 2004 and served from 2004 to 2007 as a national vice president. Then I served as a trustee, and now I'm just back on the board as a, uh, as, a, as, a as a representative in the DP category. And... Um, that's the whole story. You ran for president at one point. I did. And lost by an incredible margin. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was a special election. Uh, there were only um, uh, 57 people voting. I 57, 58 people voting. Uh, yeah, I lost by one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough loss. That's, a, no, it that's was the actually, toughest loss. I it think. was probably the luckiest day of my life. Oh. Um, I did it because I felt I had to. Um, and I was actually relieved that I lost because it would have been turmoil for my wife and I. We would have had to move to L.A. Um, and no one wants to move to L.A. Well, that's not <laughs> it's true. It's okay. You can just that's, agree with that's me. That's not true. Easy, Tiger. That's <laughs> easy. There's a lot of people that like to move to L.A. Uh, once upon a time, my wife wanted to move to L.A., but um, uh, it, would have been a, it would have been a very— uh, very difficult, and then a lot of good things that happened to me here in New York would not have happened. So, um, but like I said, I felt like I had to do it, had to run, and I made a good effort, and almost won. So, what do you think um, really changed during the merger? You touched on it a little bit that it was obviously a big step. What, what do you think? Oh, what, what's the biggest step for a New York-based guy that changed when Six Forty Four was absorbed? Um. Well, it's a different—we still talk about it, although it's, it's less and less uh, as the years go on, a culture difference um, in the way the unions are operated and looked at by the members and stuff. Um, we have one membership meeting a year. Less than 4% of the members attend, sometimes less than 3%. Yes, Doug talks about that, that it's never had a quorum ever never, or something? No, yeah. Never, never, and probably never will. Um, there, in my opinion, uh, Local 600 does not engender 
uh, membership involvement. I think early on, the very f- the very first few NEBs, and they continued. I continue to bring this up because it's a drum I will not stop beating. Um, the decision to make Local 600 a top-down corporate structure was a deliberate one. It was discussed. It was articulated. The alternative to that would make it a grassroots, ground-up run organization, which I... Um, still think is the best way for any labor organization to work, uh, lost. We, didn't, we did not prevail in that argument. We almost prevailed in 2004 uh, when there was a, a big election and the status quo was sort of uh, overturned by upstarts, including uh, myself and a youngster named Haskell Wexler and a few other people. Um, but... Um, there was so much opposition um, and so much politicking that went on during that 2004 to 2007 period that we lost our, our grip and uh, have yet to regain it. Are there any advantages that you can see in having a labor union run as a top-down corporate structure? It's much easier. How so? You don't have the members to, to answer to. You just, you just you tell them what's right. You don't let them tell you what's right. You don't, have, you, and that's what we—that's who we are. That's who Local Six Hundred is. We are run from the top, with no apologies. There's a lot of denials, but when you get right down to it, there will be no apologies because that's what was intended. That's how we were designed, and um, and that's clear. I mean, if you just look at uh, how we how we function, the fact that we have so few members turning up for meetings. We have, like I said, one a year. Um, there's no opportunity for the members to speak. There's no letters to the editor for the magazine, which the members have no control over. There's no letters to the editor for the camera angles, which the members have no control over. The National Executive Board members have very little control over the organization, and they don't seem to even want it. And if people like myself try to encourage them they kind of look at you like, well, what are you trying to, what are you making trouble for? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not trying to make trouble. I'm trying to, I, because of all that stuff I talked about going way back into my, you know, post-pubescent years, I believe that the strongest this organization can be is if the members are heard. And that ain't easy. That is very difficult. You've got all kinds of people thinking all kinds of thoughts. You've got radicals at each end of the spectrum that you have to try to appease. But what you need to do is create a consensus of the membership, and then you have 7,000 strong working together in a, in a direction, whether it be to shorten the workday, 12 on, 12 off, whether it be, you know, to... Uh, to you know, uh, whatever, whatever, healthcare, all these issues that are important to a union member, I think that we would be strongest if we truly represented the members. But that's, like I said, that's too messy and basically we don't do it. And even technology hasn't helped this problem. It's not even like you're telling all the members they have to come to this address. Uh, th- this stuff is online, I'm sure. The, yeah. the, the, I mean, I'm, you would think the technology would solve some part of this problem to get a higher percentage in, but it's not helping at all? It doesn't seem to be. I mean, there are, you can stream online, but I don't know how, you know, it's, it's hard enough when you're in the room here in New York when you're listening to uh, or watching, you know, the national membership meetings. Um, I mean, FaceTime is really important and, um, and the technology, yeah, there's, but there's, 
you know, as we all know, there's like way too much of it. I mean, you know, how many emails do you get a day? I get, you know, 300. I'm sick of all the information that's at my fingertips. But it's the valuable stuff. It's the, it's, it's the fact that the members now, for me, don't really want to be involved. And I don't know why they don't want to be involved. This leads into my next question, and I have two. One is, do you think that that is possibly because uh, why turnout can be such an issue is because our working schedules, and take it for, you know, I'm not going on one side of the fence or the other, but we have heavy working schedules. Sure. And you still have to have a, you know, have a life, yeah. maybe have a family, you know, and that could very well lead into why we don't get great turnouts at at uh, at, at the meetings. Well, at the one meeting a year, um, I will guarantee you that 96% of the membership are not working the day of or the day prior to that meeting. I was about to say, there's no way that all 7,000 people are employed that day. <laughs> this would be the greatest union I mean, ever if that yeah, were true. No, it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of guys work late, you know, they work Fridays, you know, so I could, you know, that's understandable. But 3 4% of uh, that's... That doesn't explain that, not to me, not to my mind. And my other question is, how do you think that the top-down structure interacts with the international local, uh, the uh, the international alliance, as it were? Um, well, right now, I think we uh, we interact very well, and I have no problem with the international. I was, uh, I've always had a, always when I was a president, uh, vice president, wherever wherever I was, I always had a a uh, good relationship with uh, the IA, with, with Tom Short. In fact, he was very helpful. With the brief period I was the president, he was, he was very helpful to me navigating that. Um, I don't think that... Uh, I think that the IA gives us, you know, plenty of leeway to do things that we, however we want to do them, um, as long as we don't... Uh, I don't know, go too far in any extreme direction. But I've, I've, I don't know of us ever being in danger of being taken over by the IA. Um, it was more about the interplay between, you know, um, the international alliance, sure. uh, of, you know, uh, for the international and how they operate versus how uh, Local 600 now operates. Well, they operate, they operate on a different level. There are, you know, they've got... I don't know, hundred and some thousand members, and they've got you know many many locals, so they have to operate in a, in a different way. And government um, entities that they're working with at the same time. Yeah, but I mean, I I think local six hundred, uh, you know, is like a, a state among that group. I mean, they they uh, you know if they, if the IA is the nation and local six hundred is a state, I don't know, but I, um, I don't I don't think that. It's it's it would be easy for members to take a to make a to be strong within local six hundred, um, and then we would be strong within the IA. I think vis a vis the IA, vis a vis anything, we're stronger if the members have a voice. Got it. Got it. We have successfully not talked about any specifics thus far. So what we've said, I think, thus far could be true of a lot of different locals. Specifically Probably. for the, for specifically for this, since we're talking to a camera guy and we're in a building that has things to do with the camera department. Um, I remember one of Doug's uh, big complaints over the years was a show coming from LA that brought a lot of LA camera crews with it. Sure, uh, and that might make sense if you're going to Utah or Virginia, but not here where there are a ton of local talent. Uh, is that part of, uh, of the battle in the union of, you know, how many, you know, d different crews that come 
that would that would come from LA to New York? Is that a, is that a complaint for the New York guys? It might be. It's not a complaint from me. I don't see that as part of our struggle to be a stronger union. I see that as as you know, uh, you know, somebody's somebody's looking for a job and they see guys from LA working in their region. Uh, that's I don't see that as a as a major uh, factor in how we should organize our union. There are other ways we can address that, but that's not that's not on my plate as something that's important to deal with from a union perspective. Um, fairness, even playing field, um, encourage local hire, um, all that kind of stuff. But right now, L.A. is in tough shape, and uh, and if somebody's in from L.A. and they've had their career out there and they've got their favorite operator in their first and they're doing a job in New York and they can get the production to put them up and all that sort of stuff, I think that's called loyalty, and I got no problem with that. You seem to have a wealth of knowledge about the way things should work, Robert's rules, <laughs> things of that nature. Regardless Doesn't of what, everyone. <laughs> regardless of where your viewpoints stand, um, it's important to have that base of knowledge so that you know how to effectively operate when you're sitting in a room of your peers, colleagues, yeah. and other brothers and sisters yeah. trying to make important decisions happen right. for a large group. It's not, it's not easy. And it's not learned overnight. My question is, how do you find the resources, uh, i.e. books, i.e. programs, television? How do you find the information so that you can effectively know what you're walking into when you go to a union meeting? Let's say you just joined IA this year or last, and you've only maybe attended one or two meetings. How do you make sure that you know what you're walking into before you walk into that room? You can't. Anymore. I mean, it's not, it's that we don't want you to. We're not going to send you an agenda of what we're going to talk about so you can prepare yourself. We're not going to do that on the national executive board level. We're not going to do that on the committee level. There are committees on the national executive board. Everybody on the executive board is on, put it onto one committee. Those committees meet for a couple of hours, three times a year during a national executive board meeting. There is very, very little communication between those committees, between those meetings. There's no preparation. They don't know what they're going to be talking about. And oftentimes, you don't even know what committee you're going to be on. You might have been on the safety committee last time, which I was, but I might be on the the Constitution. Well, I'll never be on the Constitution of Bios Committee. Training committee. You might be on the training committee. So there is... And that is part of the design of Local 600 that I'm speaking against, is that... If you want to get involved, there's no encouragement for it. And there's actually very little um, path for you to take. Robert's Rules is a great thing to know. It's a really a, it's a fascinating sort of study in group dynamics. Um, uh, but I haven't, in terms of uh, labor unions, I'm not knowledgeable in terms of uh, how all labor unions work. Um, I know how some work. I know how ours works. Um, I guess but I, I would say you're asking advice for like a young member, how they get involved. And if not for Local 600, for any IATSE member, anybody in oh, the, anybody in the film business in, in, who's looking to get into or who is, who is making those steps and wants to be involved but doesn't necessarily have – their 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 peers may not have the answers to the questions that they have. Right. Um, how can they get the information so they can at least, you know, be prepared? Mm. That's a pretty darn good question. You don't question. have any um, books sitting on your shelf somewhere that might. Uh, I I I I don't. I mean, like I said, my my entree was um, was different. It's all it's it's different now. Um, I had you know I had that background as a as a kid, um, 
and and enjoyed that kind of that sort of process of consensus making and, and getting together people together and moving forward. It's union politics are really tough and probably have always been. I mean, anybody that knows anything about the un- history of unions knows it's a checkered history of all sorts of good and evil people um, doing good and bad things. Um, I mean, the IA history alone in Hollywood is fascinating in the late 20s and, and 30s and so forth um, with some of those characters that were involved. But what I found is that it's um, it, it's really difficult because you lose... So many things are... De- are dependent on your sense of ethics. And and everybody is given an opportunity when they get involved in union politics to exercise their ethics. And although you and I may good, be good friends, right, we may work together beautifully. We may differ on ethical issues. And the way it's handled can be really hurtful. You can... Um, unintentionally really hurt somebody's feelings when you question their ethics. And that happens frequently. And so what ha- and so all sorts of all, all sorts of repercussions come from that. So if you want to get involved in in local in, in your local politics, which I encourage everyone to do, I think that you have to, as much as you can, remain as respectful as possible throughout the process. Um, and that's something that I have not always been able to do. Um, something that I've tried to do, but that's part of the difficulty of it is when you have somebody that's talking absolute nonsense, you can't really just say bullshit. You have to try to reason with them because that person may believe the nonsense that he's speaking. <laughs> and and by you saying bullshit or, you know, you're full of baloney or whatever you might, whatever phrase you might use, you could be not only hurting his feelings, but ruining your chance to ever come to an agreement with this guy on anything important. And the the tables can be uh, the tables can be turned also to where people won't listen to you, even though you're speaking things that make complete sense. Absolutely. But well, they of course, won't listen uh, you know. because they think you're speaking nonsense. Well, absolutely. You know, I, I, of course, I always make perfect sense. But uh, not everyone, <laughs> not everyone, including my wife, recognizes that, and I, I still don't understand that part. Humor me for one hypothetical question. Through some magic means for the next 60 seconds, yeah. you are 100% in control of Local 600. What would you change? Wow. Um, I, would make that, I would make that the national officers are a paid position. That would be my first thing. I would make sure that the national executive director was an elected position. I would tell them that they have to... Uh, each national officer has to chair one of seven committees that would run the union. And um, those committees would be like safety, finance, constitution and bylaws, uh, health and welfare. I mean, you, ha- you would divide up the operating of the, of the organization into seven committees and you would hold members of the National Executive Board who get their dues paid and who get trips out to California, all that kind of stuff. They get first dibs many times on, uh, tra- on other jobs. I would tell those people that they have a responsibility to work for the membership. And if they don't want to work for the membership, they should not run for the National Executive Board. And I think if you did those things where you have a National Executive Director who is directly um, accountable to the membership and you have uh, officers who are actually paid – one of the problems that Gary Dunham had when he was running for president is that this guy worked like 80 hours a week. And he worked himself to a, to a, into a tizzy, and he got n- basically no money for it. 
Things have changed a little bit. The officers are now getting a little bit more money through travel funds and that kind of stuff. But wait a minute. Is it 60 seconds up? You get another 60 seconds. Keep going. Bottom line is that the strength of Local 600 is the membership. And that's who should be ultimately controlling the organization. Uh, nothing else makes sense to me. I think that goes across the board for um, labor in general. Absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. And everybody in the labor union complains about their union. And I, I constantly talk to the 52 guys here in New York. They have a bunch of bunch of people, and they're great. And their, their, rep, their representation makes so much more sense to me. But I always hear them complaining about things, too. Everybody's going to complain about everything. It's the American way. It is, isn't it? We, have the, we are free to complain. That's... Uh, Some of us enjoy doing it more than others. That's true. <laughs> well, let's switch tacks. And, um, ecology, environmentalism, some of your passions led to a little project uh, called The Wind That Blows. Let's, let's talk about that. The Wind That Blows, the documentary that I recently finished after a mere 25 years, is, um, is definitely an environmental subject, but it's not a typical environmental um, viewpoint that's expressed in it. Tell us exactly what is expressed in it. It's a film about um, whale hunters in the West Indies. These men um, learned, their great-great-grandfathers learned to whale from Yankee whalers uh, in the 19th century. And um, when all else failed, that sort of took over their culture in many ways for, for decades and generations. And they continue to do it to this day. And I met them in 1988, saw them chase a whale, saw what happens on the island when they're chasing a whale, and thought, wow, this is really ironic. These guys are, you know, the humpback whale was sort of the symbol at that time, and in many ways still is, of world ecology and save the whale, you know, save the world. Um, and here I'm watching these guys uh, in an open sailboat, 26 foot long, with a hand-thrown harpoon, chasing it up the side of the island with the neighborhood going out of their mind cheering. And I just thought it was really so compelling um, that I, I thought they were going to stop doing it soon. I thought that 1989 was going to be their last year. And so I told a bunch of my friends about it. I shot some video while I was there on, on my vacation and, and put together this um, amazing effort to capture what they were doing before it disappeared. And... Um, and so in 1989, we went down. There was a whole bunch of friends coming to Toss. We talked about Toss Mikos. Toss was there. Um, Garrett Brown was there. Garrett's son, Jonathan, was there. Kyle Rudolph came down. Doug Hart was there. Um, Jim Marshall. Uh, just an unbelievable bunch of people came down to help out. And um, the whalers never came close to a whale in four months. Um, so we shot some stuff. We shot some nice stuff, but we didn't get uh, the excitement that I was hoping to get. So I went back in 90 to do it and uh, spent the 100 days of the whaling season with them in 90. And again, they didn't get one in 90. And again in 91. And finally, we had been spent so much time down there that we fell in love with this place and um, we decided to move there. So my wife and my little boys and I moved there in 92. And, uh, and, nine, and that's when they finally caught a whale in 1992. And then, so we lived there for another couple of years and had a really hard time finishing this project because uh, who would think of it? Uh, nobody could get behind the idea that these guys have cultural value. Um, 
nobody nobody appreciated the irony as much as I did. So um, I didn't finish the project. We came back to the States in 94, and it sort of laid fallow for well over a decade. And, um, and then about five years ago or so, six years ago, uh, I decided to finish it, went back down, shot a few more times, spent 2012 in my basement, trying to learn Final Cut Pro and edit this stupid thing. Speaking I was going to ask you about that because uh, obviously the, the being the DP on it wouldn't have been a challenge for you, right. but the producing part of it, the editing part of it, I was going to say, what kind of challenges were those since they're not your usual cup of tea? Well, it was a breeze. I mean, it only took 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Is that not usual for uh, uh, you know, um, uh Well, the producing part... Um, I, you know, I, I didn't, I just did it, you know, um, and the guys that came down, they just did it. They just came down and, and so what, what the film is now is a, it's an hour long. It's kind of an interesting look at the paradigm shift in technology because I did start with, uh, analog machines. I had 16 millimeter cameras, Nagra with quarter inch tape rolling in it. I finished up on DSLRs with the HN4 doing my audio. So we went from, you know, complete analog to complete solid state. Of course, I had to transfer all the film uh, to a digital format, so I transferred it all to ProRes, and that took a while and was pretty expensive. Um, but I put it in an iMac, and I did all the titling, all the narration, all the, you know, I, I, obviously, it was 1989, we started shooting it uh, through the 90s, so everything was 3 by 4 so I couldn't release it in 3 by 4 of course, because it's 2013, 2014. So I reframed everything. I blew it up and chopped off the top and bottom and did a little uh, keyframing and final cut, and every single shot has been you know, recomposed uh, for the 16 by 9 format. And so it was, it was a lot, a lot of work, particularly for somebody. The real challenge was the editing. Because uh, I'm still not all that good with word processors, and you know, had you ever done any cut. of that during your career? Or I had done some. You know, I had done some. You know, offline three quarter inch editing because that's how we initially started editing the project. So um, I had a little bit of that experience, but no experience doing nonlinear editing. And you would have had to do some producer stuff near the end to try and get it oh, yeah. distributed and all the legal. Well, we're still we're still in the middle of that, and I have a partner, and this is a great story. When we were shooting in '89. We went to this cottage uh, for some people to stay in, and along with the cottage came a, an abandoned rum shop right on the side of the road of this little, beautiful little West Indian island. And a lady named Joan Stowe owned that piece of property, which to this day is one of the most fabulous little pieces of property that you'll ever uh, be honest. On the windward side of the island, it's fantastic. Anyway, so Joan's house, was, Joan's house was down the hill a little bit closer to the shore, and we were up at what they called De Flim Shop, which was the rum shop where we kept all our camera gear. And this little boy named Chad would bring the phone up when somebody tried to call us. Chad was about four years old. About four years ago, I get an email from Chad out of the blue. Remember me. I'm Chad, Joan Stowe's grandson. Are you still working on that movie? Are you ever going to finish it? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. I'm just working on it now. Anyway, he's now my co-producer. He's an account executive at Young and Rubicam here in Manhattan, which is outrageous because he was a little boy growing up on the island of Beckwe uh, yeah. when we started filming this film. Everybody's got a chance if you can just put the, put the energy into it. Yeah, and get so, the right head on your so in many ways the film spans a generation. I have the, uh, not only is Chad, spans Chad's, you know, from his uh, being a toddler to a grown-up, um, and, it's, and it spans the, from the, the shift from analog to digital, 
But also I have, you know, whalers who have been whaling there for 25 years that are, uh, you know, one guy who was one of the featured guys in the film was uh, 17, 18 years old when I met him and was hoping he could become a whaler. And now he's one of the most, you know, um, experienced whalers. So it's uh, it's interesting from that perspective. Because these guys, uh, I'm sure, are not exposed to as many uh, PSAs and advertisements about, you know, what's going on on a global scale. None. So to them, they're just living their lives and trying to get by on the one of the very few resources that they can actually export. Yeah. So uh, there's definitely whether well, they or not, don't export it, but just to just to clarify that they pretty much consume it there. There's no there's no market. They don't sell it to the Japanese market or anything like that. So in essence, it's it's like the farmer who uh, you know may uh, slaughter their cows, but you know takes it on for themselves and their families, so that they don't so they're not abusing the situation. Wherever you stand on the uh, on the scale of 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 uh, animal rights, right, right, um, that is again the glory of the documentary. It can also be, of course, twisted, sure. you know, to 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 in any which way. But um, I think the approach is is right on that you try and capture the cultural value and tell the story. Yeah, well, there's also a, there's also the other meaning for it, and it's a. Someone called. Someone described it, a guy that who has seen a lot of uh, independent documentaries and has helped foster them in film festivals and so forth. Called it a gentle film about a gentle people, which I I, I think it is. Um, but part of the story is that I was making this film for people like myself, who have become so detached from nature. Here's what we do: we live in an air conditioned house that's heated and air conditioned by fossil fuels, and we jump in our fossil fuel driven car that's probably guzzles too much gas and it's air conditioned and it takes us to the supermarket which is incredibly air conditioned and we buy our lamb chops wrapped up in plastic and we carry them home and we think there's no blood on our hands and then we slap a save the whale bumper sticker on that gas guzzling SUV and we are really free of guilt and I think that's somewhat hypocritical and somewhat naive. And what I saw in these whalers were guys that didn't own cars, didn't have air-conditioned homes, didn't, um, you know, they had blood all over their hands. When they caught a whale, I mean, it was a bloody mess. And, and they had zero carbon footprint. And I just thought, wow, this is something that I want other people to ponder because it's blowing my mind. <laughs> As a documentary filmmaker, are there any nuggets that uh, you could share with the audience? Um, obviously, we've talked about uh, you know the the changing of the formats, things like that. But are there any specifics that you would say if you're going into a documentary that you want to get done? Like, make sure you do this. Wow, I made so many mistakes. I would we'd be here for about five hours if I listed them all. Um, I would say you know the best advice that I ever got, which I obviously didn't. Um, take was uh, other people's money you know don't make this a personal project that you're funding yourself because it just it just ups the the difficulty you know uh increases the difficulty quite a bit i mean i remember shooting interviews especially when it was on film now it doesn't matter because media is basically free but when you had to pay for film i would be talking to a guy and i would look through the eyepiece and I'd see dollar signs running in front of me rather than, you know, the smiling face of a guy trying to tell me a story. I was like, oh, my God, get to the point because this is costing me a fortune. You know, so those kinds of things you don't really want and have to deal with. But, you know, fortunately today that's, I mean, it's so, 
it's so different now in terms of how to make how you can make a film. I mean, anybody can make a pretty good film with an iPhone. <laughs> and then it was a big deal, you know, when you were shooting shooting film and getting it processed and you know, Steenbecks and stuff like that. It's crazy. Even the DPs now are making their own documentaries. It's it's gotten completely out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't consider myself a documentary filmmaker, although I did make one. <laughs> Obviously, the wind that blows. Uh, we're going to have the link on our blog. That was your baby. Have there been other projects that had special meaning for you? Nothing like that. Nothing like Nothing a twenty-five of, year yeah. thing. But what was what's number two? Hustle and flow. Why? Um. Um, I think I got the interview for the job because I'm tall. <laughs> and uh, Amy Vincent, who was the DP, called me up and we talked, and um, she made sure I was tall. And uh, something wrong script. with that? That's where they made George Washington uh, the first general. <laughs> he was the tallest guy in the room. He was bound to lead something. <laughs> uh, there was a scene toward the end of the film that she thought was going to be handheld, and and my height would be an advantage. So. Uh, that's one time that my height was, was an advantage. Uh, was, that was great. Uh, I'm not that tall, but um, anyway. Uh, she sent me the script. Tall, What's that? He's nine feet tall, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. Uh, she sent me the script, and I cried when I read it. I mean, it's just a beautiful little story. And there's a moment there where one of the character's wife sort of sees how invested he is in this new crazy idea and brings him and his buddies some sandwiches. And it's just like, oh my God, this film is a tearjerker. It's a beautiful film. And I don't know if you've ever anybody's seen this film, but uh, it's a film about a about a, a pimp and his hose and drug dealing and <laughs> and and ultimately about this guy trying to make a better life for himself. Hustle and Flow had a lot of soul. Like it was a, oh, a forget about it. And Craig Brewer was an awesome guy. Um, you know, he's the guy that wrote it and directed it. Um, Taraji Henson was, I mean, the cast was awesome. I mean, um, I couldn't have, uh, and now I'm blanking on this star. Terrence Howard. Of course, Terrence was amazing. Um, and, you know, there's just scenes, I don't know, I recommend everybody see that film. And Amy did a fantastic job, and it was a really great crew, and uh, we had some people from Atlanta, we had some people from New York, we had a... You know, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Memphis was great. It's my all-time favorite movie-making experience. As an AC, as an op, you worked under a big list of DPs, and obviously you've worked with, uh, with a big list of directors since. Who have been your biggest influences on uh, your particular style? Um, I guess, I mean, I, I come off as an old-school guy and or maybe a curmudgeon about the way things are changing sometimes. I don't know if we've talked about it that much in this conversation, but... I do lament the changes that are happening in the industry these days, you know. And I attribute a lot of that to the um, influence of a guy named Gordon Willis, who recently passed away. I had uh, your father, Doug, was his first, and he hired me to be the second on a film called Stardust Memories, or at the time it was known as uh, Woody Allen's Fall Project 1979. And uh, that was like a five- or six-month project as it ended up. And uh, I saw the master at work every day. And um, the genius that he and Woody created together was 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 really uh, left an impression on me um, that I can't shake. And just the reverence that everybody had when those two went to work and the respect for the craft and the craftsmanship 
Um, you know, that's I miss that. I miss that because it's 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 it is different now. And so I would say that even though it was, geez, almost how long ago is that now? Almost forty years. <laughs> We're looking at thirty five, forty years. Um, and there's a great photo of that that'll be on your uh, blog post of uh, you oh, and Doug. Oh, yeah, it. that's a fantastic it's photo. A great I photo. think everybody's seen that by now. You know, it's funny that a lot of people think that that, that picture of me is actually my one of my sons photoshopped in because it's uh, he looks we look so much alike in that photo. Um, so he was probably the biggest, although it's a long, long time ago. Um, I worked on a film in New Orleans uh, called All the King's Men uh, oh. that Pavel Edelman. I shot. was there. Yeah, yeah. I was one of the electricians. Uh, through, awesome. Uh, I was on the rigging crew, yeah. and then I moved over to first unit as one of their electricians. Uh, spent some time in the 150 foot condors that they had for the for the big backlights and um, outside the state house there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were, yeah. we were there, but uh, obviously we wouldn't have met. You know, just on two yeah. separate tracks. Yeah. No, Pavel Edelman was a DP and probably one of the finest gentlemen I've ever had the pleasure to be around. It's incredibly talented. Super. Cool, low key. Um, I like Gordon. No pretense, you know. Just let's just do really good work, and uh, let's all focus. And, and it was, it was, it was, it was terrific. Um, I had the pleasure of working with Haskell Wexer a little bit in my career as an assistant, never as an operator. But uh, he's a real um, inspiration to me. Uh, I worked a lot with Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam. Uh, who is um, uh, one of the coolest guys ever, most talented, multi-talented, brilliant guy, nice, gentleman. Um, and uh, so I, I would say that of my heroes, uh, I would say it would be Haskell Wexler, uh, Garrett Brown, and a man named Jeff Erb who recently who passed away in the last year who was uh, – he was a DP of a – of a lot of shows in New York, and in his last two or three years as a DP, he did from a wheelchair. Um, but he was a very inspirational guy and a cool guy. You have a whole career shooting here in the city. You got to give yeah. us um, uh, any cool New York moments of uh, mayhem in the streets, chaos, fun, any fun stories of shooting here and uh, wackiness ensued? Um, I think probably the most. That occurred, I think, when we were doing Sex in the City um, the most because we were on the streets and we had the four four girls, you know, trying to uh, get shots with them. And, uh, you know, it was always a big deal because of all the vanities that were involved and so forth. And uh, I just remember one particularly memorable shot. It was, a, you know, they, that show was shot in 16 millimeter. And so I had a 300 millimeter lens on the camera on Fifth Avenue. That's a pretty tight lens in 16 millimeter. And uh, we were doing a four shot of the girls coming up Fifth Avenue, and it was rush hour. So we were like two blocks away from where they were. And so we had PAs and ADs trying to clear a path on the sidewalks on Fifth Avenue at rush hour. I'm sure so that's had, no problem. So I'm we sure had a clear shot of the, the girls. World. I mean, that's insanity. <laughs> and the AD, uh, to watch him th- trying to control the, 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 the crowd, I mean, we, had, we threw a few extras in there just in case, but it was mostly natural crowd. To watch him through a 300 millimeter lens try to control the crowd was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And uh, it was it was awesome in dailies. 
because he would, <laughs> he, 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 you know, he had to he had to get the people out of the shot. And then he had to get himself out of the shot. And so there'd be moments where you'd see this maniac trying to explain to you know seventy five people at a time. Could you all move to the left? <laughs> no, not you. You go to the right. I mean, it's just, it was insanity. So that was probably the most humorous uh, New York moment that I can remember. Fair enough. My last question, uh, just because of my own uh, idiosyncrasies, I have to ask about Star Trek V, which you're credited on working as uh, with some of the VFX photography. Yeah. What was that experience like? That was really cool. Um, there was this uh, crazy genius uh, named Brand Farron, very cool guy. I think he's one of those guys, I don't know, what I, the legend is that he dropped out of MIT because he wasn't learning anything, you know, one of those kind of guys. Wow. <laughs> he was cool. He had a place out in East Hampton, uh, Farron Associates, that was, uh, they did all kinds of crazy stuff. They did, uh, you know, cutting edge sign work and film work and design work and, you know, all sorts of things. And uh, so he had the contract to do VFX for Star Trek. So I never really spent any time on the set with, you know, Andy Laszlo or anybody. Uh, but I spent a lot of time for a couple of months um, at Brand's place with uh, some pretty cool people, one of whom is Phil G, who works at a camera service center. Uh, he was a camera assistant there. And we had some really cool, we had Vista Vision equipment that had been purchased from Pinewood and, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of really interesting camera equipment. And we shot iridescent dyes floating in water with black under ultraviolet lights. And we shot uh, things that were going to look like planets. And we shot things that were going to look like a maelstrom. We shot a big giant spinning um, tube with uh, scotch light on it. And, you know, we did all kinds of crazy. So not model work per se, but it was sort of effects, it was space all, effects kind yeah, of stuff. Exactly. And it was, and it was really fun because there was absolutely no holes barred, you know, just, and, uh, and Bran would, you know, look at the stuff and he'd come in and say, cool, you know, and then, well, here's some other stuff. So do some other stuff. And sometimes he would have a strong idea. Sometimes he wouldn't. And it was pretty much hands off. And so, uh, you know, Phil and I just did all kinds of fun stuff and I would have loved to have done more of it and finished up the project but that was uh, like November and December of 1988 and in January of 1989 I took off to shoot The Wind That Blows hmm. so that was uh, who knows that might have been the start of a long career shooting iridescent dyes floating in terrariums I don't know <laughs> Yeah, there was a documentary about it that, you know, the transporter effect was like glitter and water just being spun and all this. So had a, different lights that they were putting up against water was all, all, all sorts yeah, of Yeah, all that kind of crazy, yeah. crazy stuff. So fun stuff. It was really fun because it was film, because we didn't have a video tap, because we didn't have a HD tap. So we didn't know. We didn't have a clue. Is know, this really going to work? Is it, yeah, we'll find out. Well, I, we probably ought to shoot it at an eight. But maybe we should shoot it at a four. But you know, it's it was it was so different then, and and now it's changed. Now you just look at the monitor and you make it brighter or you make it darker. You know, you don't. It's like there's a lot of uh, I'm lamenting now. The, the 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 magic is gone. You you brought up part of it there. There seems to be a lot of uh, back and forth about like focusing from the monitor and all that. What's your that. what's your take on that? Well, okay, so. It, every you know, it's a huge paradigm shift, and I hate to sound like a fuddy-duddy, but there are certain things that I really miss. Um, and all of this has happened because technology has changed. I miss having the, as an operator, I miss having the focus puller standing next to me. And I could go, now, not now, 
or wait or this or that, you know. Uh, we could talk to each other. Now the focus puller is usually 30 feet away. Um, with remote control, with, with remote control, staring at a monitor, and it's um, it's just different. I mean, there was a different sense of a, of a teamwork. The the camera team, you know, you'd use typically you'd use wheels if you're operating, and I, clearly most of my experiences as, as an operator uh, throughout my career. Um, so I'm pulling on that mostly, but. Um, you know, you're walking through the eyepiece and, you know, let's say you want to bury a Zoom. Okay, the second assistant, step up, come on over. You're going to do the Zoom. And if it was a kid without a lot of experience, that was a big deal that he's now part of actually making the image. He's not, you know, loading or marking or he's actually got his hands doing something that the camera is doing. You know, he's in, he's dancing with the camera team. And that was a really lovely way to get people involved, and then the guy, then the next step, of course, would become a focus puller, which is hugely important. Um, so those kind of things have changed now. The camera, the assistant's not there standing with his hand by the knob. I mean, nobody hardly ever uses the knob anymore. It's always a, a Preston or whatever the next iteration of uh, wireless technology will be. Um, and so I kind of miss that. So, you know, if... Um, if, if for some chance I find myself in a job where I'm actually shooting film and the assistant's got his hand on the knob, that's just a warm feeling to me. Um, it's, you know, the, the DP sits in the tent with the remote iris, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I, the, when I shot uh, digital, I did uh, the two shows I spoke of. I did not want to do the remote iris. I, I want to go out there, take a light reading and talk to my assistants and say four and hear them say four. Yeah. At least or, get out there and measure the backlight. Or something, yeah. you know. Um, but you don't need to so much anymore. You know, I mean, I, I did a job just recently. I was doing some, some uh, additional photography or whatever. I was doing it double up or tandem or something. And we did have the remote irises. And um, I went out and I was looking, you know, I took a reading and looked, I evaluated the shot. And I figured, okay, I guess I should shoot this at a 5.6. And so I go back to the tent. And there's our loader, perfectly lovely person. I'd set the iris at 5.6. I was like, oh, that looks great. Well, what am, you know, but that used to be, I was like, that, I was saddened by that. It's like that used to be the DP's thing, right? The DP calls the stop. Nobody questions the DP's stop. He has to factor in filters and, you know, shutter speeds and backlight issues and, you know, where to put the fill and all that kind of stuff. And only he knows how it's going to look. But now it's like the loader is there nailing it. It's kind of sad. I don't know. It's sad to me. You were talking about letting the uh, the, the fresh face second do something. One of my favorite memories is on Hardway when we were down on the pier and you had about six cameras going for the cop car doing oh, a yeah. big barrel roll. You let me start up one of the cameras uh, and then have to run about 200 <laughs> feet to get out of the way of all the, your really long shots looking down the pier. And uh, that was one of the coolest things for me. Yeah. You guys let me slate occasionally, too, which was great for a 13-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Was that an IMO or a 2C or something like that, an action camera? Uh, well, no, I probably... Mm, uh, no, the Panastar was nowhere near me. I think it was gold twos or so. That I, I was The one that I started was pointed straight up, and all you saw on dailies was like one tire go by. Oh, oh, oh. It didn't get anything cool. It was right next to the ramp uh -huh. where the, the cop car did. Uh, uh, maybe the two-second or a two... <laughs> 
five frame cut or something. I don't know. Who knows? Tom, this has been uh, this is our first podcast here in New York. Uh-huh. Uh, we're so glad to have had you. It, it, I hope it, I made sense. No, it was absolute nonsense. You know, as we were talking about before, none of it processes for me. No, um, no, Good. without a doubt. No, it was one hundred percent. Uh, super effective, and we're really, we really appreciate you coming down here. So sure. thank you so much for coming down. Sure, sure. Thank I love this business. It's a, it's a great business. It ain't perfect, but what is? So that's the end of part one of our six episode New York sessions, the Metropolis recordings, the Big Apple moments. Let's go, Mets. We had a good time. Uh, we hope you guys had a good time, too. Uh, one last time, don't forget to check us out at www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. We hope, uh, we hope you check back in with us next week and uh, keep listening. So thanks again, everybody. <laughs>